Now, we'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. We are in the last week of our seven-week series going through the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to be tying everything together today, looking at the last three chapters of the book and kind of bringing in all of the big ideas that we've discussed so far. And as Terry mentioned, next week we're going to be going through the book of Malachi. That seems to be a good bridge for November 24th, because on Sunday, December 1st, we will then be going into Luke. And we're going to be looking at the birth of Jesus for four weeks in the book of Luke. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, how in the world can you look at the birth of Jesus for four weeks? Is there really that much there to talk about? And the answer is, yeah, there actually is. There's a whole lot there to talk about. I think we sometimes forget just how earth-shaking the birth of Jesus really was. And part of that is probably because this time of year we drive around and we see churches and houses that have nativity scenes up. And I have nothing against nativity scenes, but we see glow-in-the-dark Jesus We see inflatable baby Jesus. We see baby Jesus that has a GPS in his back. That way, in case anybody tries to steal him, that's a thing, if you didn't know that. Uh, And then we see Ricky Bobby pray to baby Jesus for their KFC and Taco Bell. And we kind of lose the impact of Jesus and just how significant the birth of Jesus really was. So we're going to take four weeks and look at that together, looking at all the different angles, all the different aspects of Jesus' birth that are absolutely, incredibly important for us to understand as followers of Christ and as people. But before we do that, we're going to finish up today. Will you pray with me, and then we'll get into our text. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And God, thank you for everything we've learned thus far through the book of Nehemiah, all of the things that you've used to challenge us, all of the words that we have been convicted by. And God, thank you for your word. God, I pray that as we read it today, our hearts and minds will be focused on you, that distractions will be cast out of the room, and that we will truly focus on your son Jesus, focus on the cross, and focus on what it is that you would have us do, what our mission in this world is. God, we love you, we thank you for Christ, and we thank you for your grace. We ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Nehemiah chapters 11 through 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles underneath the chair, uh, right in front of you, beside you, wherever you need to grab one. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. Now, before we actually start getting into chapter 11, I want to talk about those big ideas I just kind of mentioned a few minutes ago. These big ideas that we've learned. We've been talking about the book of Nehemiah and using the title Building Blocks as the title of this sermon series. Because I think there are things that we can learn from Nehemiah that are absolutely great building blocks for our faith. Convictions and principles that we should have as followers of Christ seeking to grow in our faith, seeking to glorify God more and more every single day. Not only that, I think that we have a lot of building blocks we can look at here, not just for our own individual faith, but also for our church. What are the things that our church should be built upon? What are the principles that we absolutely should be dedicated to? What are the convictions we should absolutely stick to at all times? And so we've been looking at that, and I want to revisit a few of those things. So big idea number one, Nehemiah is never content with mediocrity. 
He's never content with mediocrity. In the first chapter of the book, we see that Nehemiah hears that the city of Jerusalem is lying in ruin. He hears that the walls are torn down. His brother comes to Susa, where he is serving the king of Persia, and tells him of the sorry, sorry state that Jerusalem is in. And what does Nehemiah do? He weeps. He mourns. He grieves over this fact. And he prays. But he doesn't just sit back and pray, God, I hope that you will certainly do something about this. I hope that you'll step up to the plate and change things. No, he does more than that. He prays, but then he seeks what God would have him do. And it turns out that the thing that God would have him do is return to Jerusalem and lead the rebuilding efforts of the wall himself. Nehemiah is never content with mediocrity. He refuses to sit back and watch Jerusalem be mocked, the city of God, the city that should be an indicator of just how blessed God's people are. He refuses to sit back and let that happen. Big idea number two, Nehemiah constantly leans on God. Throughout the entire book, multiple times, we see these examples of when Nehemiah is in a bind, of when things are going well for Nehemiah. No matter what kind of situation he's in, Nehemiah turns to God. He leans on God. When he's confronting the king of Susa, sticking his neck out there, asking him if he can return to Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall, what does he do? He prays. When he goes to Jerusalem and is trying to cast the vision to these people of why this rebuilding effort needs to happen, what does he do? He prays. When he is mocked by his enemies... And the people doubt, and they think that they can never get done with this project. What does Nehemiah do? He prays. He leans on God at all times. Big idea number three is that Jerusalem had a glorious past to build on. This was the city of David, the city of Solomon, the city that God gave his people that at one time, not too far earlier, was the most powerful city in the world was the most prosperous city in the world, but it had fallen because of sin. But that doesn't change the history they had. The first week of our series, we had pictures up here from Prairie View's past of people who were here maybe five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. We looked at the pictures of this building as it was being constructed in the early stages before it was ever even here. And we saw that there is a glorious past here to build on. We saw pictures of kids that came here when they were in elementary school and left here as adults and are now off in various cities, at various churches, in various jobs, and they are serving God faithfully. Because what it is that God did for them through this church. Prairie View has a glorious history to build on, just like Jerusalem does. Big idea number four is that opposition stands no chance against God. Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, there are three guys who don't want to see this project completed. They don't want to see Jerusalem's walls rebuilt. They've kind of enjoyed kicking Jerusalem while it's down, and so they're not crazy about Nehemiah. So they try everything they can think of. They try threats, they try mocking, they try distractions, they try to get under Nehemiah's skin. And it almost works, but they fall short. And a big reason why, back to big idea number two, is that Nehemiah constantly leans on God. 
But opposition never wins against God. You know, there may be times when it looks like opposition wins against God. One of those times was probably as Jesus hung on a cross. It may have looked like the opposition won. Jesus is crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bleeds out, the Roman soldiers are probably thinking, well, Jesus didn't win this time. (laughs) He didn't get us this time. He didn't trap us this time. But guess what? Three days later, it becomes clear that the opposition didn't win because Jesus rose from the grave and he would then ascend to be with God where he still is today ruling over creation. There may be moments where it looks like opposition wins, but it doesn't. Opposition never stands against God. And then finally, big idea number five is that revival is more than just walls. We talked about how important it was that the walls be rebuilt. That's a big deal. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to underestimate that. However, that's not Nehemiah's only concern. So he gets together with Ezra. And they challenge the people to get back into God's law, to discover what it is that God would have them do again, to glorify God again, to seek obedience to him again, to repent of their sin, to repent of where they've fallen short. And when they do that, incredible revival happens in Jerusalem. It's not just about walls. It's not just about infrastructure. It's not just about being able to defend the city. No, what matters most to Nehemiah and what matters most to Ezra is the spiritual state of the people inside the city. That is what will truly cause the city to flourish or to prosper. And I think the same thing goes for us here at Prairie View. It's not about building walls. It's not about any of those things. What really determines whether or not this church will prosper is the spiritual state of you and me. That's the big idea. So that brings us to where we are today in Nehemiah chapter 11. I'm going to start reading in verses 1 and 2 as we tie everything together. Verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. For a city to prosper, it sounds pretty simple, but you got to have people who live there. If you don't have people, it's just going to be a ghost town. And for quite some time, no one wanted to live in a city that didn't have any walls because you would be open to attack. You would be open to your enemies. And so people had kind of distanced themselves from Jerusalem. But the walls are now rebuilt And so Nehemiah encourages people to move back in. They cast lots, and some people agree to, and the city is slowly but surely being repopulated. Now, one thing I found interesting in verse 1 is that the verse refers to Jerusalem as the holy city. We haven't really heard of Jerusalem being referred to as the holy city very much so far in this book. It's almost as if Jerusalem wasn't worthy of that title until now it wasn't worthy of that title until the walls were rebuilt it wasn't worthy of that title until the people repented of sin it wasn't worthy of that title until the people were being revived by god but now it's the holy city 
Jump forward to Nehemiah chapter 12. The rest of chapter 11 and the first half of chapter 12 focus on that repopulation. It lists the people who move back in. It lists the priests and the Levites who start performing their duties in the city again. And then we get to Nehemiah chapter 12 verse 27. Now, a lot of people say they like the book of Nehemiah because they like how when you read it, it almost feels like you're reading Nehemiah's journal because he speaks in the first person. He's always telling stories from his perspective, but that hasn't really happened since verse seven. But then we get into verse 27 of chapter 12 and we see the first person narrative again. So look at chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. All of Nehemiah's efforts have come to this moment. This is the consummation of all that work that Nehemiah put in. The consummation of all that blood and all that sweat and all those tears of rebuilding the wall, all the blisters, all the sore back, all of the blood that poured out of people's hands as they crushed their fingers, putting one block on top of another block. It all comes to this moment when the wall is dedicated. And so naturally, they're going to throw a party as they should. They deserve it. But it's not just any party. Look at verse 30. The priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. It's certainly something to celebrate, but they're also doing it with reverence, because they always keep in mind that they didn't do this thing. They didn't rebuild the wall on their own. It was with God's help. And it was only by God's help that this project was a success. Jump forward to verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. Now, I've been waiting seven weeks to talk about the dung gate. The dung gate is exactly what it sounds like. It is the gate where all of the human waste goes out of the city. So if you were reading it and you were thinking, what in the world is the dung gate? There you go. The elephant's out of the room. That's what the dung gate is. So they meet at the dung gate. Jump forward to verse 37. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs to the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. So that's one choir that Nehemiah has put together. Verse 38. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. So Nehemiah puts together these two choirs. And the way they're going to celebrate, the way they're going to dedicate the wall is that they're going to go around the city of Jerusalem and they're going to worship and they're going to sing and they're going to praise because they want everyone to know just how thankful they are that this wall has been rebuilt. What do you think they were singing? Well, 
Psalm 48 may tell us. Look at Psalm 48, verses 9 through 14. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. So the people go around the city and they're worshiping. And they're singing this song. And the thing I like about this song is that last part. That the generations may know God through the way that we sing. I love the way that's worded. Do your kids and your grandkids... Do they know who God is by watching you worship? I hope so. I hope my son knows who God is through watching the way I worship him. I pray that every single one of us will take that responsibility seriously. That the next generation will know a little bit about who God is with the way that we worship. That's part of our vision behind Kid City Sunday. Eight times a year, we have the kids don't have the regular classes. They come in here instead, and we get it. It can be a little bit hectic. It can be a little bit crowded. It might be a little bit inconvenient for parents, and that's okay, because we believe that eight times a year, there's value in kids seeing you worship, in kids seeing you open your Bible, in kids seeing you take communion. We believe that can have a huge impact And that's why we do it. But I also pray that your kids are seeing you worship and open your Bibles, not just here, but everywhere else too. I pray the next generation may know a little bit about who God is by the way that you and I worship. Now jump forward to verse 43 of Nehemiah chapter 12. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. It's a little bit redundant of a sentence. In that one verse, you have five different occurrences of the idea of rejoice or joy. And the whole idea is that this is just how happy these people were. Their joy is being heard from far away. And you know, I can't help but kind of picture in my mind Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem kind of standing at a distance, looking at Jerusalem, kicking themselves, wondering, you know, what could we have done different? How could we have done something better to frustrate this project? What did we miss? Where did we drop the ball? I know we could have done this. And they hear singing and they see the completed wall and maybe they get more angry Maybe they get more bitter, or maybe their hearts are softened. Going into the Christmas season, I couldn't help but think about how the Grinch stole Christmas as I read this verse, because the Grinch lives on a mountain just outside of Whoville, and he hates Christmas because he has to hear all the people singing, and he has to hear them laughing and hear them enjoying one another's company, and he's lonely, and he's angry, and he's bitter. 
And so he comes up with this plan to ruin Christmas, to take all the gifts away, thinking that that will stop the singing. So he goes down, he steals all the gifts one night, Christmas Eve, and when the people wake up, they still sing. They hear, the Grinch hears them singing. The Grinch hears their joy. And guess what it does? It softens his hearts a little bit. It makes him rethink the bitterness that he has. And he comes down to Whoville. And he enjoys Christmas with those people. I pray that through our worship, through your worship, through my worship, that people who are lonely, that people who are bitter, that people who are angry, when they stand at a distance and they see our joy and they hear our worship, that their hearts might be softened. That maybe they'll be a little bit more open to this God stuff. I pray that the people who live in these neighborhoods, just a few miles away from us, all surrounding us, I pray that as they hear us worship, as they see us worship, as they see us come together, I pray that their hearts will be softened. That maybe they can see Prairie View Christian Church to be a place of hope, to be a place of joy, to be a place of gratitude, to be a place of encouragement and community and accountability. I pray that our worship will be heard from far away. Jump forward to Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to shift gears just a little bit. Nehemiah chapter 13 probably happens about 8 to 10 years after Nehemiah has stopped serving as governor. He was in Jerusalem from about 445 to 444, and then he probably returned to Susa to report back to King Artaxerxes to continue his job there. But he hasn't been in Jerusalem for quite some time. And all of a sudden, he comes back. And you have to think that Nehemiah is anxious to see just how the city is doing. After all that work he put into it, after all that effort, he wants to see how they're going, how it's progressing. So he comes back to Jerusalem. And look at verse 4. Now before this, Eliash of the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So Nehemiah returns, and he finds something bad. Tobiah, the old enemy, Tobiah, who we thought that we were done with, well, he finds a way to worm his way in to Jerusalem. He's related to the priest. So he ends up using that to his advantage to get a room especially made for him in the temple. Something that would have been highly, highly frowned upon by anyone who understands the law of God. By anyone who respects and reveres the house of God. But Tobiah just moves on in. Maybe he's thinking that he can still frustrate the project in a subversive way. Right underneath their nose. But then Nehemiah comes back. What do you think he's going to do? Verse 8. And I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So Nehemiah throws Tobiah out. He 
refuses to let this impurity happen because, as we discussed, he's never content with mediocrity. He's never content with anything that does less than glorify God. So he throws Tobiah out of the temple. But there's more problems than just Tobiah. We see that the Levites and the temple and the priests had been neglected. We see that the Sabbath had been ignored. Basically, the people have fallen back into that pattern we talked about last week. That pattern of when things go well, their eyes are drawn away from God, they end up getting distracted, and then it takes a tragedy. And then they'll come crawling back to God, begging for forgiveness. And it seems as though they're in phase two. They're in the phase where their eyes are distracted, where they've sold out, where they've abandoned that covenant they made just a few years earlier. That's a problem. They had forgotten what they read in Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Had they already forgotten everything that God had done? Had they already forgotten the covenant that they made? Had they already forgotten what it used to be like in Jerusalem when they weren't following God? Apparently they have. And you have to wonder how Nehemiah feels. He's got to be angry. He's heartbroken. He feels betrayed. He feels foolish. Look at verse 30. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. I have to wonder if someone came back to Prairie View 15 years from today, someone who was here this morning and they came back 15 years from now, would they find a church that's more faithful than we are today? Would they find a church that's more committed to obeying God than we are today? Would they find a church that's trusting in God's grace more and our good deeds less than we are today? I hope so. I hope they would. You see these blank poster boards up here. The first week we had pictures of Prairie View's past, and so now the question needs to be, well, what is Prairie View's future? Fifteen years from now, twenty years from now, when someone preaches and brings up pictures of Prairie View's past that would be now, what will they see? Will they see a church that was faithful? Will they see a church that refused to settle for anything less than that that glorified God? Will they see a church that constantly leaned on God, no matter what it is that we were facing? Will they see a church that had faith that opposition could not stand against God? Would they see a church that refused to abandon the covenant that we made with God? I hope so. Those pictures, that history is still being written. And I pray that you'll be a part of that future. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. And one of Peter's first sermons talking about Jesus shortly after Jesus ascended to be with God. In verse 11, we see that Peter refers to Jesus as the stone that was rejected. And that this Jesus has become the cornerstone. 
I pray that in the coming weeks and months and years and decades, as we write these histories, as we fill these boards up, I pray that 15 years from now, when someone looks at them, they will see that Jesus is the cornerstone of all that we've done, of all that we did, that everything comes back to Jesus. So now the question is, what is it that we are called to do? Well, I think we're called to rise up. I think we're called to strengthen our hands. I think we're called to repent of sin. I think we're called to have our hearts and minds transformed by God daily. I think we're called to spread the gospel no matter what it costs us. I think we're called to glorify God and refuse mediocrity. I think we're called to be the kind of church that Nehemiah would want us to be. The question is, will we do that? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for the fact that you have made Jesus the cornerstone of all that we do. You've made him the cornerstone of our salvation. Our salvation is not based on what we do, but what the cornerstone did. It didn't look like God won that day 2,000 years ago as Jesus hung on the cross, but three days later it became apparent that God did win, that you always win. God, I pray that as we look upon that cross, as we look upon that victory, that we will be more and more trusting in your mercy, more and more trusting in your grace, and more and more inspired to share that message with anyone who will listen. God, be with this church. Help us to continue building here. Build through us, build in spite of us. God, build us up individually and build us up as a community. I pray that we'll have the courage, that we'll have the strength, that we'll have the boldness to rise up and build. I pray that you'll strengthen our hands. I pray that more and more and more will glorify you in all that we do. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you don't yet know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the side of the room because God builds something in those who turn to his son. God is at work in those who turn to his son. He can get rid of despair. He can get rid of loneliness. He can get rid of bitterness. Your heart, your mind can be transformed by the spirit. And if you're looking for that, I pray that you will accept that. If you have questions about our church, feel free to talk to our elders. If you have prayer requests, feel free to talk to them as well.